Turpentine is excited to announce our new show, The AI Daily Brief, hosted by Nathaniel Whittemore. The AI Daily Brief is a daily show that covers all things AI, from legislation to new technologies in the market, to the philosophical and ethical debates around generalized intelligence. If you're looking for an edge to stay up to date on everything AI, subscribe to The AI Daily Brief at the link in the description. Wokes are focused on moral innovation. Techs are focused on tech innovation. And in fact, both tech and woke are like two sinusoidal parallel movements that both arose like sort of after World War II. Whether it's like desegregation for the wokes and the transistor, right? You can kind of see moments, you know, internet boots up and the 60s protests and then the microcomputer and PCs in the 80s and protests over uh, like the Clinton era, you know, PC stuff. There's both PCs were in the late 80s and early 90s, yep. right? And, and so on and so forth. Like tech and woke have sort of been growing out of the post-1945 uh, dispensation. And tech is actually very opposed to communism and woke is very opposed to fascism. I'm Eric Tornberg, and this is Upstream with Eric Tornberg. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Upstream listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code Upstream. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com, to get started. Bology is an accomplished entrepreneur, exec, investor, and intellectual. While he's built big companies with Coinbase and Council, his biggest impact is opening the aperture of what's possible intellectually in tech and understanding not just how tech works, but also how culture and politics works. He's most recently in the news for his bet that Bitcoin will hit a million dollars in 90 days. A bet he knows he'll lose, but he's doing it to warn people about the oncoming banking crisis. We recorded this episode before we made the bet, but it's actually a great time to release the episode because in it, we talk about his past predictions as well as his future predictions, like how the left will transition from wokeism to statism, how the right will transition from conservatism to Bitcoin maximalism, and how we'll organize digital communities into IRL sovereign network states over the next few decades. Those things may seem crazy, but Balaji has said a lot of things that were once crazy that now sound mainstream, whether it's the advance of genetic engineering, or how crypto will create a trillion dollars of market cap within a decade, or that COVID might go viral and we might enter massive lockdowns. So without further ado, here's Balaji. Balaji, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Great to be here, Eric. Balaji, you've made a lot of predictions in the past decade, uh, you know, some of which I don't think you've gotten sufficient credit for. And so I want to kind of revisit and talk about some of the predictions you made that have panned out, some that haven't yet panned out, or some maybe that you've you've changed your mind on. And so maybe I'll start by framing it. There have been like technological predictions, right? Like there was crypto, 
There was, uh, you know, bio and, and gene editing stuff. You know, it's kind of like transhumanist stuff. Like we said, uh, you know, the world has become more biology-like, you know, um, remote. Um, so there was technological stuff. There was kind of more like trends. I, I think you predicted a lot of like what was happening between tech and media uh, early on, um, between the political nature of activism and how it was incorporated, you know, in, in, into companies. Connor from Rome, you know, once tweeted, um, the scariest words in the English, English language are biology was right. So maybe let's start by unpacking that quote. Why is that one of the scariest phrases in the English language? And then let's talk about some of the things you've you've predicted that have panned out and some that haven't yet. Well, so first, very kind. Obviously, you know, I do make errors and there's lots of things I've gotten wrong in my life. And uh, I actually wouldn't even consider my primary identity a predictor per se. But I think that insofar as there's any truth to that observation, what I am good at predicting is... I look for large secular trends that if they do get extrapolated all the way out, cause significant consequences, often discomforting consequences, you know, in the sense of things that upset something that's there today. And that's why people are not thinking them all the way through. They are often resistant. They have some mental block on them. And uh, so it's kind of taking a very obvious thing and then taking what the internet does, which is it takes the obvious thing and it scales it all the way out to a thousand X and it often does so faster than people expect. And then seeing what happens when that obvious thing at small scale becomes obvious at large scale, which is where people are in, often in denial about it. Now that doesn't always happen. It's basically like the trajectory of a startup, but it happens often enough that, you know, if you, if you can see some of those things and you know, extrapolate them out, you might, you might make some correct predictions. The other thing is also that I think there's really only kind of two predictions that I find useful uh, are classes of prediction. You know, the first are sort of vague directional trends, in which case you make an investment of some kind. And I am not like a good trader, T-R-A-D-E-R. Uh, I'm a seed investor. And there's a big difference. A trader is good at somehow predicting the vagaries of market sentiment, right? You can do this with like quant things and historical data and, you know, Soros-like, you know, Soros is a concept of reflexivity. There's people who are good at just predicting this, you know, short charts. Uh, you might argue, are they really good at it? Or maybe they're good at, you know, time series analysis and not psychology, but there's people who are good at that. What I am good at is predicting that something that's at one today might be at a thousand or 10,000 or a hundred thousand X in, in five or 10 years. So, but that's like a high-level trend prediction where you go long on something, going short on something is very difficult to do unless it's a long short, meaning it's hard to go short on Blockbuster, but you could go long on Netflix. And you don't know exactly when Netflix will disrupt Blockbuster, just that Blockbuster is going to be disrupted at some point. You don't need to nail the timing, just need to be directionally right and bet on those things that are directionally right. So that's one class, like the financial prediction. And the other class is the very micro-scale technical prediction, like this drone will land on this ship. You know, you have to get the X's and Y's and thetas and phi's all correct for your trajectory prediction. You know, this diagnostic test, it's giving off A and C and not T and G, okay? So that's a second kind of prediction, which is extremely micro. And if you get it wrong, your plane crashes or your test doesn't work or, you know, your intrusion isn't detected or something like that. That's like more of a physics or machine learning style prediction. 
So those are the two kinds of predictions I think are useful. Things I don't think are useful are things like, what will be the value of this government statistic in a few days? Or predict this binary variable and uh, you know this one outcome, and then everything is levered on whether that is predicted correctly or not. Even that's not really good. You actually want to have like 50 or 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 binary outcomes and look at your calibration of probabilities. And if you predict 60%, then you should see 61s and you know 40 zeros. So anyway, those are the two kinds of predictions I think are valuable. The long-term sort of trend prediction, the short-term micro-technical prediction. One thing I appreciate is that you're also willing to change your you know, predictions based on how the facts change. Like, you know, what happened in China in the past year has kind of somewhat modified your view of, of what's what's likely to, to happen there. And I'm curious for the the moments that changed kind of your mental model. And I have a question as to if, you know, one of your beliefs is that it, it's difficult to recapture institutions and instead you just have to create new ones. And yeah. I'm curious if Elon and Twitter is a, either is an exception to the rule or that proves the rule, or is it a genuine additional approach? Yeah, good question. So starting with that, I think a slightly more precise framing is the older the institution is, the harder it is to reform and recapture and the better it is to build a new one. Tech companies are way younger and have still much more of a genuinely hierarchical structure than you know US government institutions. I've said actually for a while, I think they are more amenable to take over and reform than government agencies. But even still, you would typically do a startup to disrupt rather than take over and reform. You know, TikTok was started well after Twitter and it's bigger than Twitter. And that's just, that's like one example. You know, Nikita Beer has gas and that seems to be doing really well. Yeah. So those two things can be true at the same time. You'd probably usually do a startup to compete with a giant company, but it is also easier to take over and turn around a giant company than it is to turn around a government agency, lull on the whole government. Yeah. Again, on the predictions and stuff, Ben Horowitz and many others have made this observation that a batter who, who bats 300 is crushing it. They're missing 70% of the time, right? And I kind of think like I've built devices that have worked like diagnostic tests and, you know, robots that move into the, the right position, you know, the inverse kinematics you can implement and the hand moves to the right position. So the micro predictions, I've been able to do them okay. And the macro predictions, I've been a fairly successful investor. But I, I, again, I wouldn't call myself like a seer or something right. like that. Uh, just, I, want, I just want to qualify that. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah. Totally. One of your models that has been interesting to me and has been kind of, um, you know, recent events, FTX and, and Twitter files have kind of shown a bit more true is that, you know, your observation that when people are talking about like saving journalism, they're really talking about saving journalists. Or when people talk about saving democracy, they're really talking about saving the Democratic Party. Oh, right. And this broader observation you have that like yeah, ideas like Christianity, capitalism, democracy, socialism have often meant like very different things and sure. even contradictory things yes. um, depending on who's you know using them and, and what their interests are at any given time. Yeah, yeah. Are ideas kind of just like weapons for you know people to use at each other? So ideologies can be. So, so just to be concrete, right? Like Christianity both justified tearing down the Roman Empire and building up the much later Holy Roman Empire, which oftentimes you have that thesis and antithesis that form a synthesis, right? Christianity and the Roman Empire were at hammers and tongs. And then whatever, 100 years later, there's this fusion entity that justifies itself as the successors of the Roman Empire, but of course, they're also all good Christians. And you know, Nietzsche talked about this out 
Go ahead. The Christian king. The Christian king. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. And so I talk about this in, in the Network State book that you have, uh, you know, for example, in China, you have the communists who are against the capitalists. But then you have, and by the 1990s, you had the capitalist member of the Communist Party, the CCP entrepreneur, right? Or another example in China, you're the communists fighting, you know, Mao's communists fought Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists. And now the communists are ultra Chinese nationalists and they yeah. defend themselves <laughs> on the basis of being the inheritors of traditional Chinese culture. And yeah. actually Chiang Kai-shek is more celebrated in some ways on the Chinese mainland than he is within China, I mean, within, within Taiwan rather, right? Yeah. You know, so the communists have become nationalists. And, you know, this is something you'll actually see frequently is these two sides just go at each other. And then, you know, like a few years later, maybe a decade or so later, they just sort of figure it out. Like, you know, the neocons and the, you know, many Democrats were hammer and tongs in the 2000s. And now suddenly they're, they're on the same side, right? On Ukraine and many other kinds of issues, right? This is just something which is just a human thing. Uh, you can see it many, many different times. But the thing that you mentioned, which is that an ideology can mean both X and its opposite. Well, you know, when you have scripture, if you have sufficiently complicated scripture, you can go and quote a passage that means turn the other cheek, or you can quote it to mean some fire and brimstone damnation of somebody, right? And any sufficiently complicated body of literature can either be quoted out of context or selectively in this way to achieve whatever objective. And this is, you know, relates to the concept of Russell conjugation, right? Um, which Eric Weinstein talks about and many others have talked about. Bertrand Russell introduced it. I dox, you leak, but the New York Times investigates, yeah. you know? So uh, that's cynical, but that's also different than saying, you know, something that is, uh, I don't know, Euler's formula, e to the i pi plus one equals zero. Yeah. That is an idea. It's not an ideology, right? That's neutral. So I'm not, I don't believe that everything is political. I talk about this in the book. There's a, that, that spectrum between technical truths and political truths. It is a deep insight that history is often written by the victors. But it's also true that if that was the only thing that was there, then we wouldn't have a history of, I don't know, of uh, like star, we wouldn't have star charts. We wouldn't have functional agriculture. It would basically say, you know, go and worship the sun god and you'll grow the agriculture. There had to be some technical facts that were passed down without political interference for us to maintain our civilization. That's like the struggle in humanity. Hey, everybody. I want to recommend a couple other shows that we also run. One is Moment of Zen, which I co-host with Dan Romero and Antonio Garcia Martinez. We talk about everything from tech, the history, philosophy. We've also featured Mark Andreessen and Balaji on those podcasts, so I recommend you checking them out. My other show is Cognitive Revolution. It's an AI show that I co-host with Nathan Lebens. I recommend listening if you want to stay up to date with all things AI. We'll continue after the break, but first, a word from our sponsors. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. Get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. I believe in SecureFrame so much that I invested in it and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo and mention Upstream during your demo to get 20% off your first year. Now, more than ever, startup founders need a safe place to put their cash. Mercury protects your money and also provides the streamlined user experience that great founders expect. Through partner banks and their sweep networks, Mercury offers up to 5 million in FDIC insurance, which is 20 times the per bank limit. They also make it easy to invest any cash above the FDIC insured amount in a money market fund. 100,000 startups trust Mercury with their finances. I've been a happy Mercury customer and have found their team incredibly helpful and responsive. 
They even got an important wire out of purgatory on Christmas Eve. After all, your Christmas is my opportunity. Visit mercury.com to get started. Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group and Evolve Bank and Trust, members FDIC. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. With thousands of pre-vetted marketers across a dozen roles, Marketer Hire matches you to your perfect marketer in 48 hours. Whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle, content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy, Marketer Hire has you covered. So if you're a founder looking for top-notch marketing talent to grow your startup, head over to marketerhire.com to find your perfect match. Sign up with referral code UPSTREAM and you'll get $1,000 in credit on your first hire. One of your other observations is that in the early 2010s or for most of the past couple decades, you could build a tech company and not have to think about politics at all. Right. But there's something happened in, in the last few years that now people have to be a, a lot more cognizant of politics. In a way, yeah. it, it's part of like the building your, your whole stack, you know, your concept there. Why don't you unpack that? Yeah, sure. I don't think you start with a tech company anymore. I think you start with a tech community. And why do, why do I say that? Because what are countries, right? You can think of them as platforms that you target, you know, just like you target iOS or Android. You know, that's part of your strategy. You're, you're, you're thinking about, you know, you're using React Native or using iOS or Android tools. And you're like, Android is used by many people in the world, but it's lower dollar value. Like that platform that you're targeting goes all the way up to the product itself. And it's a huge decision. Like Instagram was just iOS only, which was controversial early on, but turned out to be right. Then they did Android. Okay. Um, do you target the web? Do you, these are decisions that, that affect the product, right? So clearly what platform you're targeting matters. Clearly, what country you're targeting matters because, just as an example, do you do you start with all your content in English, or uh, you know, are you starting out of Poland? In which case, you need to build probably internationalization into the website from the very, very beginning. Okay, Europeans, Indians tend to think international from the very beginning because they don't have the large domestic market. And same, it's starting to change for India, but you know, and of course they've got the EU. But like in terms of at least languages, people think about translation earlier there, right? So the point is that basically uh, those are things which we know are variable, right? We know the tech platforms vary. iOS and are different. The countries vary. What's happened, thanks to the internet over the last 20 years, there was a good reason to connect people. Lots of new friends were made. But you know what else was made when you connect lots of people? Enemies. Lots of new enemies. Okay. <laughs> and the essentially the offline world pre-1990 was a result of an enormous number of fights where all these people eventually kind of got pulled into various regions, you know, like, for example, post-World War II, there was massive ethnic cleansing of all these Germans. And, you know, everybody was mad at the Germans and ethnic Germans got like pushed into Germany or, or just like killed or whatever at the end of it. And, you know, of course, Germans themselves killed a bunch of people before it. Right. And so a lot of those borders in Europe and in other places today are peaceful or were peaceful and quiescent for a long time, but reflected a whole fractious process running up to that. And, you know, what was happening before the internet is you might have had some, I don't know, Archie Bunker, warehouse worker type, thinking what he's thinking, cracking his jokes to his friends, and then some very hoity-toity college professor thinking what they're thinking to themselves, you know. And then they're put on Twitter, and now they just can't stand each other. They're not, ignorance was bliss, right? Now each of their insane comments basically is pushed into their guys, not, not just into their like sphere, into their literal face where they're holding <laughs> up their phone in the most, go ahead. 
Yeah, no, I'm just laughing. Yeah. Right? So like yeah. the most insane possible thing from someone who's just so polar opposite to you is stimulating and just pushing your face, push notification, and they're attacking you. So, And so what's happened, one way of thinking about it from a border standpoint, groups that had just sort of being separated by all kinds of processes, you know, the good fences make good neighbors, right? They had self-selected, they had migrated, they had language borders, country borders, practical borders. They were suddenly all pushed into one gigantic room, you know, or one gigantic continent rather, okay? It's like this cloud Atlantis descended from the heavens. And, you know, if you think about how many hours a day you spend on the internet, right? How many hours a day do you spend on the internet? In front of a screen all day. All day, right? Many people, it's like eight hours a day or something like that. So you can imagine yourself, you wake up and you telecommute up, you know, eight hours in the cloud. And then you you come back down and you're spending your time on the land. And when are you on the land? When there's no screens. There's no Apple Watch. There's no iPhone. There's no laptop. There's no big screen. There's no screens of any kind. You're just in the physical world. And the only proximity you have is to other physical people. Okay. For many people, that's a minority of their time now. Their proximity is not their physical proximity, it's their digital proximity to people up in the cloud. Oh, and by the way, even when you're disconnected, people are still taking swings at your avatar up over here. So you need to, you might need to just basically, you did your daily commute, might have to do a nightly commute to come back up and enter the arena once again, right? Put all the helmet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So this cloud Atlantis is something where, uh, with the exception of China, it doesn't mirror all the borders of the world that existed before it right? You have billions of people just put into this gigantic arena and they're all just slugging it out in the cloud and new borders. I mean, A blocks B is the most pathetic bilateral border. Of course, there are borders and sets of silos between tech companies and stuff like that. But, you know, those are genuine communities like Pinterest and Instagram and LinkedIn have different cultures. But those are like offline countries in the sense of there's like, more common culture in a sense within than between, right? And, uh, you know, we're still at the earliest days of this, you know, with the new world, with the, you know, the various quote colonies in the new world, people thought of that as English and Spanish and, you know, French and so on and so forth. They didn't yet think of them as their own countries. And, but eventually over time, those settlements started to take on like a sense of national sentiment of their own and became America and all the countries in Latin America and Canada and what have you, right? And so we're still, we're, we're in the early stages of that, but I think that's going to happen. Cloud nationalism, internet nationalism, internationalism, where people within these networks up here start feeling closer connections than to other people who were maybe their countrymen offline, but are certainly not part of their states of mind online, you know? Yeah. So what that means is, just like you can't just you know, take your platform for granted, you can't take your country for granted, you cannot take your cloud community for granted. You are selling into that market just as much as you are deploying an iOS or Android, mm-hmm. just as much as you are operating in the US or the EU or India or Japan, right? And uh, so, so once you realize that, it's intrinsically political to say, I am you know, operating the US versus I'm operating in the Middle East or something like that, right? You're, you're operating in, in Dubai. It has different laws, right? There's different things. Things that are legal here are illegal there and, and vice versa, right? That's like, do we think of that as political? Well, the reason, when, when people say something is political, what are they really getting at? Just to poke at that. It's like, uh, do, you know, do you know how market depth works in, in crypto? Have you seen um, an exchange? Not, not a ton. Okay. 
So there's if you go to any crypto exchange, you will see an order book, which looks like a sort of two triangles like this, like a V, all right? And here's all the buy orders are a triangle on this side. And here's all the sell orders. That's a triangle on this side. And the mid-market over here between, you know, just imagine these two triangles, like it's almost like an M, like duh, 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 right? The mid-market right over here is the current price. And there's lots of buy orders, that price moves up. There's lots of sell orders, that price moves down, all right? Now, most people in the offline world, you're a price taker. When you go to the supermarket, you go and, you know, you get some orange juice, you're paying, I don't know, three bucks or whatever it is for a quarter of orange juice. I don't even know what the prices are on orange juice. I hate orange juice, but I'm just giving an example, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. It might be 50 bucks in Inflation America now. Okay, so let's say it's like $4 a liter. Sure. All right, okay, fine, yeah. if you buy one. But now let's say you go clean out all the shelves. You buy all 100 units of orange juice at that store for four bucks. Now you walk over to the next store. They've heard when you're coming. Now you're paying 450 for their 50 units of orange juice. Then you go to the next store. They've heard you're coming. Now you're paying $5 per unit for the next 70 units of orange juice you can get, okay? So you started to buy so much, you started to shift up the mid-market price. You're uh -huh. no longer just a price taker. You're actually affecting the price of the market, okay? That's like, you know, oh, you know, shoot, we were seeing volatility in the market, right? Similarly, if you dumped a bunch of orange juice, you'd start to see prices crash, okay? So now in the same way, that's called market depth, right? That's like, you know, the, the you know, price evolution in cryptocurrencies and stocks. A very similar thing happens with the so-called Overton window, okay? And what happens there is you've got a window of what is politically radical on both sides and what is conventional wisdom as of right now. And what happens is that if market depth is about like price, this is about like political support. And so you imagine you have like vote banks on either side, right? And this side wants to make the policy more stringent. And this policy wants to make the, this side wants to make the policy more relaxed, okay? And if all that happens, at, at some, or rather at some point, what could happen is one side gets the advantage mm -hmm. and they can push the policy over. So policy starts moving in real time, just like a price starts shifting. Wait a second, I thought orange juice was $4. No, it's four, it's four fifty. It's $5, it's, it's $10. What the heck is happening? I budgeted for this, yeah. right? That's when people are like, wait, they don't like volatility in prices. And when people say things are getting political, they're talking about volatility in policy. Hmm. Okay? It's exactly the same thing. If you can amass enough money, you can move a price because you can, right? And if you can amass enough votes, you can, or support more generally, you can move a policy. Right? Yeah. And when people feel, wait a second, this thing I thought was constant is becoming a variable, that's what they're reacting to when they say it's getting political. Now, if it moves and then it's constant for a long time, now people can adapt to it. And so it doesn't, you wouldn't call it political that there are differences in law between the US and Dubai or the US right. and uh, Japan or something like that, right? That's not considered political. Oh, they're just, they're different political units, yeah. but it doesn't feel like it's shifting in real time. It's when within a country, policies are shifting in real time and you're like, what the heck is going on? That's when people say it's political and that's what's happening to the internet because you're now having this support over here or over here that's pushing something down or up and that's what people are reacting to. Let me yeah. pause there. Yeah, not, not only policy, but also sentiments around like, you know, customer sentiment or investor sentiment or, you know, your social supply chain, yes. your idea there where, you know, people might, these these movements could be the equivalent of like a pump and dump that could affect the, the sentiment could change quickly yeah. in a way or even yeah, employee sentiment. Yeah. The current thing is like a social scam. If you go and punch into Google Trends 
uh, any of the hot button keywords over the last 10 years or something. Deep you see a ski slope yeah. graph, right? That looks yeah. exactly like a pump and dump of a stock, okay? It just goes soaring up and then crashes down like this. Now, the thing is, a pump and dump of a stock is bad, but at least everybody who's part of it opted into it, right? They all, you know, you yeah. can't con an honest man or whatever. Somebody thought they were going to get fast gains and they bought into this stupid thing or whatever, right? Not to say those things are good, but at least the damage is limited to those who got into the arena, right? Yep. The social scam is much worse because all these people who scream this thing, but they get tons of followers on the way up on the social scam. And then it goes down and everybody who's just affected by the misinformation are the ones that are hurt by it. They can't opt out of that, right? And because all of these critters say the same thing at the same time, then, you know, there's like a thousand people who all said, and everyone's like, oh, you know, that guy, that guy. <laughs> and there's no way to blame, right? This is what I, I call the, the school of fish strategy, right? The school of fish strategy is basically, it's like, just say the same thing everybody else is saying. And if everybody's wrong, anybody's wrong, everybody's wrong. Who, yeah. you know, who could have known, right? But then if there's one person who sticks out, you can all gang up on them if they're ever wrong on something. It feels like in the last few years, we've built up more cultural immunity to, to current things because we, I guess we've just become so familiar with them. Maybe it's like the boy who cried wolf. Yes. But it feels like it's harder today to have something that would happened in 2020, for example. You know. Yes, but there's a cost to that, which is the immunity to the current thing means just a lower trust society. Yeah. Right? So what happens is the, the fire break Right? It used to be that if A told you something and B told you, you would just pass like this, right? Because you're in a high trust society where da, 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 people would exploit that to just you know, spread these stupid messages. Now you have an adaptation, as you said, which is it's a low trust society. And so then it's like, I don't trust you, you're in the other tribe, right? But that has other consequences where, yes, it does stop the current thing, but it also stops many good things. The scale of cooperation in society, you know, if you don't trust somebody to tell you the news, do you trust them to like grow your food? Right. Right. Or do, or do lots of other sensitive things? Maybe not over time. Pass your laws, enforce your laws. I don't know. Right. Yeah. And so then, so that adaptation leads to eventually like a fissioning and, and separation, I think. Yeah. So uh, we're only at the beginning of this, I think. Yeah. Th th that's really interesting. One of your other theories is that the logic of technology determines the logic of violence. Or, or this idea of like, well, that's that's his yeah. thesis in the sovereign yeah. individual, and I think there's that's true. But but I think there's things that I would update from the book. Well, yeah, say Go more. Well, well, let me frame it. I was basically just going to say, sure. In in the middle of the 20th century, you know, you talk about peak centralization and how technology favored that, and now technology is favoring decentralization. But I'm curious if, if you still think that's true in a, in a world where you know both China and America are willing to use the latest technology to censor or even lock down its its, its citizens, and in a world where you know open AI is starting to to really gain some steam, is it both decentralized and centralized? Or like how do you how do you see that playing out? And also, I want to hear where, where you want to update the book. Yeah, yeah. So, well, so first, the Sovereign Individual book is a very good book and worth reading. And for when it was written, it got a phenomenal number of things right. But what happens is everything that you get really, really right, like a huge trend, uh, often arouses a counterforce. You know, the Reformation arouses a counter-Reformation, you know? And um, decentralization has aroused the counter-decentralization in both the U.S. and China. And in China, that's taken the form of, you know, the Great Firewall and all the top-down control. They've just taken the hit to retain control. And their fundamental premise is when they say, you know, the system with Chinese characteristics, 
what they mean is they retain root control. They retain the private keys. They retain ultimate control. Okay. The wisdom of that is being seen today, a wisdom, what should I call it? Let's call it at least the farsightedness. You know, there are people, you know, for example, The Atlantic, there was this guy, uh, I think Jack Goldsmith wrote, internet speech will never go back to normal uh, in the debate over freedom versus control of the global network. China was largely correct and the U.S. was wrong. Okay. So there's a fair number of folks in the U.S. establishment who regret not having controlled social media more aggressively than they did because now they allowed all of these proles to get freedom of speech, right? That's what happened. I mean, that's the thing is, you know, these people are like, oh my God, Twitter and Facebook are a threat to our democracy, blah, blah. The reason they're mad is that Twitter and Facebook are ultra democracy. They're giving all these people a say who didn't have a say before, right? Yep. The reason they're mad is because they're actually granting the freedom of speech that was nominally promised to people that was not actually available to them because you only have freedom of speech if you own a media corporation and paid for a very expensive TV or broadcasting or radio license, right? So when they say, quote, our democracy, it's a little bit like, you know, people talking about, oh, communism was so great for the workers while the USSR put workers in gulags and broke the strike of solidarity. The last thing they want is, quote, democracy in the sense of individual rights and being able to speak for yourself, right? So now, the Chinese are at least straightforward about this. They're like, yes, we do not want individuals to say something. We want, they're, they're making the argument that the greater good is better than the individual, right? In a sense, that is straightforward, right? And it is it's just more down the middle, you know? And because of that, they have just implemented top-down controls and all this stuff. Okay. Uh, that's not to say that they aren't like somewhat responsive. It seems that they've loosened up on all the COVID stuff recently after all this, I mean, massive protests caused it. But, but it does seem like, you know, they're not, they don't have a total death wish or whatever on it. On the other side, the other kind of counter decentralization is not state directives in China, but what's emerging is something where you have like the exact balance, I don't know, and it's TBD. And there's many possible outcomes, but you have a weird corporate state fusion in the US with a bunch of different factions of which in many ways, the, the corporations are the most agile in terms of deplatforming, unbanking, silencing, censoring, et cetera, people who disagree with the regime. Uh, and then you have the third faction, which is the re-decentralization, that is Satoshi and Web3 and cryptocurrency and so on. That's like the, the third faction, right? So the first thing is that it, it's not as straightforward as just a straight shot decentralization wins. It is, I think, decentralization gives rise to counter-decentralization, gives rise to re-decentralization. Now we have at least three fractions factions globally, which I call in the book NYT, CCP, BTC, right? As just catchy, uh, of course, they're reductive, yeah. you know, but they're catchy titles for what they are, right? Okay. So that's one aspect of the sovereign individual. As good as, how could it have gotten that right? That's like taking this extremely non-obvious thing, playing it all the way out, and then finding non-obvious conclusions. It was pretty impressive where they got to despite that. Okay. The other thing on the logic of violence that they got, I don't say wrong, but incomplete, is they gamed out uh, crypto, but not drones and not VR, okay? And why is, why is that? So with, with drones in particular, right, one way of thinking about it is if the state, because of encryption, cannot seize the money, like in Venezuela, right, then... It cannot pay the conscripts. It can't pay the police. It can't pay the soldiers. And therefore, it can't simply 
if it loses legitimacy, it can't just enforce laws because it's not able to even pay its own, you know, military or soul or police to, to go and do and beat up people. That's part of the sovereign individual thesis. Do you know what the counter argument to that is? Uh, no, what? You don't have to pay a drone. You just have to charge it. Hmm. Right. So the entire concept of the principal agent problem, right, where you have a principal, like a, a principal is like a VC and an agent is a CEO. Or the principal is like the CEO and the agent is like an engineer, okay? And whenever you've got a, a principal agent problem, um, you've got a two by two matrix where the principal can win or lose and the agent can win or lose. So for example, a VC and CEO, the win, the, there's a win-win quadrant where both them win when there's an exit and both them make money. There's win-lose where the VC uh, sells, right? But the CEO the CEO doesn't get money. Conversely, there's lose-win where the CEO uh, sells at a valuation where uh, the um, VC doesn't make money. This is one example, right? Depending on the terms, both those situations can arise. So an example of where the VC, could, you could have a sale where the VC makes money and the CEO doesn't is uh, like 3X liquidation preferences, right. right? And the VC makes money and then the founding team doesn't get it. Or the CEO could sell and the VC might make, not make something in a variety of other circumstances, okay? Or it might not be a, a significant return for the VC, but it's life-changing for the executive. And then, of course, there's lose-lose where both go bankrupt, right? Yes. So all, all four quadrants are possible. We've seen all four quadrants. And the goal is to try to make the win-win so much more valuable than the off-diagonals that people just go for that, okay? Now, the thing is, there's different ways of resolving the principal agent problem. One is the concept of alignment that we always talk about in tech. And aligning means diagonally aligning it. So lose-lose and win-win are the only two things that are common. And what happens is once you have not just two people, but three people, what happens to three people? It's not just two by two. It's two by two by two. No. Because you could do win-win-win, win-win-lose, all eight possible outcomes, two to the third. And if you have N people, you have two to the N possible outcomes. You have a whole hypercube of possible outcomes. And so that's why you have equity. It's like everybody wins when the whole company exits or everybody loses if it goes to zero. And don't even think about all the off-diagonal cases where half the team could gang up another half the team and loot internally, okay? So that's one way of doing it, which is alignment. The Another way of doing it is minimize the number of people in the org chart because every edge in the org chart is a principal agent problem. And do you know what the limit case is of minimizing the number of people in the org chart? No. One person who has AI and drones doing everything. <laughs> that may be where... People go, that's where maybe where states go when humans refuse to do the job, they just have drones that they can plug in and charge. Now, of course, it's not as simple as that because, you know, the drones have screws yeah. and batteries and parts and factories and supply chains, but net net, it may turn out that they need fewer humans to maintain consent. It's the opposite of the 20th century where it was mass media and mass production and you needed ideologies that appealed to the masses of democracy and communism and fascism, all of this had mass appeal, right? Lowest common denominator. Here, all that may matter is your AI and crypto engineers. Yeah. The robots to build the robots and the crypto to encrypt the communications or cryptography to encrypt the communications and send the money. And so it's like a totally different model than the 20th century in terms of how you protect the treasury and the military and so on and so forth, right? Now, I'm not saying you just jump directly to that. People had horses in World War I. They started out with that as a transitional phase, okay? But that's where one might go. And what that means is the logic of violence is not as simple as in the sovereign individual because the autonomous robot challenges the sovereign individual. Yep. You know, the autonomous robot 
it allows the individual to be sovereign, but that individual, I mean, that's the other, you know, paradox, by the way, I mentioned there's like, you know, a few different factors. One is the autonomous world. The second is when I say the individual sovereign, the logic of the sovereign individual is that one person can become super powerful. Well, guess what? What if that one person is Xi Jinping? Well, then he makes you not super powerful. Yeah. Okay. So that's the individual sovereign. When one person gets really powerful, they can reduce the power of others. Okay. And the third wrinkle, so the, the autonomous robot, the individual sovereign, and the third wrinkle is the sovereign collective. Because very few individuals are truly, truly sovereign. Remember that post by Steve Jobs that just came out as like, a, I I don't grow my own food. Yeah. I don't, you know, carpent my, you know, do my own chairs. He's, he's basically giving credit to all these other amazing people around him for whom he totally depends on all kinds of things, right? It's a distributed computation system. And as strong as his ego was, and he is a great man, he truly brought Apple all the way back from the brink. He's also self-critical enough to know that he is still dependent upon others, right? I mean, hard to think of a more sovereign individual than Steve Jobs. And yet he also understood that there was a collective aspect to it, right? This is why I'm not like a, I've never called myself a stereotypical libertarian because you can overcorrect on that. Yeah. I think society as a whole currently probably undercorrects in terms of thinking about individual you know, impact and so on, but it is possible to overcorrect on that. And that's the third corrective, which is a sovereign collective. It's pretty difficult to maintain a civilization or a high standard of living and so on as a single individual, even with the robots, you're going to have to sleep. You know, we're not yet genetically engineered to require no sleep. Someone has to patrol and so on, right? So you need a collective to be able to do things. The numbers of people are reducing for sure. You know, technology is giving a massive amount of leverage. Notch and Satoshi did so much with just one person. But that, those are my kind of edits to the sovereign individual, the autonomous robot, the individual sovereign, and the sovereign collective. Yeah. Go ahead. By the way, I might put this as a, a blooper in the in the beginning. I just uh, tell the producer, but we just confirm you're in a secure location, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Perfect. Um, okay, there's a few points I want to jump on there. One is there's this idea that that tech has had a hard time kind of coordinating as an industry. Like people say, oh, tech is so powerful, blah blah blah. Tech is powerful, but in a scattered direction. Like tech can't even get like a couple thousand votes in San Francisco to you know be able to build in in its own city. And, you know, it makes sense that they're, you know, Facebook's not going to coordinate with Apple. They compete with Apple, right? And so there's ne- there hasn't been this, like, unifying vision. You mentioned a few years ago that, you know, Bitcoin perhaps should be the flag of technology, but maybe Bitcoin maximalists kind of thwarted that attempt. How do you think about that, that now? Like, what what is the flag of technology or, or what can or should tech unify around that's feasible? I think Bitcoin is still going to be the flag of technology in a sense, because by 2030, I don't know when it, when it happens, but at some point, there's going to be a sovereign debt crisis. And what I mean by that is just sovereigns who are printing too much money won't be able to pay it and will start defaulting. I mean, this has already happened to places like Argentina and so on. But we're starting to see the monetary system break these insane inflation rates. At the same time, you've got insane interest rates. And, insane, you know, people are like, oh, we're going to have the roaring 20s. Well, you know what the roaring 20s was? It was the teens with all the printed money, Right. I don't know if what I don't know what this decade is, but it might be might I don't say for sure. Who knows? It's all very highly volatile. Might be like the Great Depression, except the Great Inflation. That might be this decade, and at some point, it's probably going to come down to something like USD versus BTC. At which point you're going to ask, fundamentally, are you a nationalist? Right? Do you believe in you know the flag and the state and all of these you know sort of things? Or do you believe in, let's say, American values more broadly, right? Do you believe in 
freedom of speech? And do you believe in free markets? And are you a fundamentally internationalist who believes in the equality of man across borders and not simply within one country? You know, do you actually believe in the rules-based order and not simply think that the only rule is that your your fellow countrymen should remain number one? I, I think you can make a consistent argument on either the nationalist or the capitalist side. You can make a consistent argument on either the socialist or the internationalist side. And those are respectively the right and left of the debate. You know, either you have the right arm capitalist and left arm internationalist going together, or you have the right arm nationalist and the left arm socialist going together. But that's different than how the parties were set up in the 20th century. That's a realignment. This guy, Duranimated, made actually a pretty good, uh, um, which shows that realignment happening. I'll, I'll put it in the uh, show notes. Let me see if I can find it. Just maybe put, project that visual for a second if you want. Yeah, sure. It's pretty good. I mean, just, just to drill into this for a second, again, you know, just like we were talking about earlier, sometimes cats and dogs fight yep. and then they become the same thing, right? So let me make an observation. In 2015 or 2014, before 2014, China was just considered, you know, the back office of, you know, the, the, the US, right? Yep. It was not like a huge topic of controversy, et cetera. In 2012, Obama had said, oh, you know, Romney, uh, you're stuck in the past. Russia is not an issue for us in foreign policy. Okay. Then 2015, when Trump, you know, came down the escalator, he started saying China, 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 China. And people made fun of him for that. That was a huge thing where, um, you know, the entire sort of internationalist capitalist sentiment of the U.S. for decades had been, you know, not necessarily extremely pro-China, but certainly pro-China enough to do billions and billions and billions of dollars of business each year. Yeah. Right? And even as late as 2019, Obama put out a documentary called American Factory, which was basically playing up the concept of international multilateral capitalism with China. Okay. But by 2021, the Democrats had now moved basically to Trump's right or the Republicans' right on China. And part of this is, you know, post COVID, uh, China was now not just a threat to Trump's blue collars. But to Biden's blue checks. Okay. Yeah. And do you see what I'm saying there? It was not simply a threat on no. like, oh, it's just taking manufacturing jobs of guys in the Rust Belt that the establishment doesn't care about. It was now becoming a pure competitor and a genuine threat to the empire's power. And so that's why suddenly they quietly moved to Trump's right without ever saying that they were doing that. Right. And, you know, Republicans in their own way have taken many of the words and phrases of the anti-war left during the 2000s, right. the free speech left, you know, and like there's individuals that sort of have probably been consistent all the way, like Glenn Greenwald, you know, but that like reflects more the Republican Party today than the 2000s Republican Party. So there's been that switching, this uh, the flipping that I talk about in the book. Just to game that out and push that forward a little bit, another sort of flip like this that I think is possible to happen I would probably bet on this. I, I I don't know exactly the time frame, but I just like the Democrats moved to the right on China, but did so sort of quietly. Mm -hmm. uh, I kind of think the Democrats may move to the right on immigration. Interesting. Okay. Why? Because it's no longer a surefire vote winner. Okay. Latinos are moving to the cultural right. Yeah. That seems to be a consistent trend across multiple elections. Roy Texera, who wrote the emerging Democrat majority, has basically repudiated his thesis on Substack and yep. saying, no, 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 this is not necessarily going to be the case. Uh, Muslims are allying with Christians in Michigan on cultural issues. 
you see in the, you know, that, that uh, tweet with Elon showing the post, post Elon Twitter team, right? Yeah. Whether they were actually on H-1B visas or whether they were immigrants who were naturalized or children of immigrants, it was true that that group of people include a lot of folks from Asia, a lot of folks from India and so on. So maybe H-1Bs and Elon himself being a tech immigrant, they're no longer reliable Democrats either, just like Latinos and just like, you know, the Muslims in Michigan. Obviously, Chinese people, the Chinese government isn't going to let talent come over as easily. And the U.S. establishment doesn't want them to come. They're under suspicion, unfortunately, people of Chinese ethnicity in many places. How, how far does that go? I don't know. But I do know that it's starting to be like in the 2000s, if you were Muslim in the U.S., people are just like side-eyeing people, you know. And you can give all kinds of arguments for maybe that's good or whatever. But I'm just saying that if you were Chinese American or especially a recent Chinese national, yeah. water certainly turned cold, you know, and you might want to go back home simply to be treated better. Of course, there's other problems with that. So maybe you go to Taiwan or Singapore, right? Or, or, or some other place with Chinese diaspora. And, uh, you know, you may not have seen this, but evidently the Hill has reported that the border <laughs> wall, Trump's wall is being built. And uh, yeah, here we are. Here's the intercept, ready? Joe Biden resumes construction of the border wall. Okay. The the babies in cages thing is uh, is still happening. It's just called, uh, what's it called? It's like minors, um, hold on, I wouldn't get the exact phrasing. They're calling it something different, right? Um, migrant children detained at border, right? Okay. Border shelter for teens. See, under Trump, it was babies in cages, but under Biden, it's border shelters for teens. Border shelters. That makes it sound positive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, like literally in the NPR headline, it says, fact check, Biden reopens border shelters for teens, but it's not kids in cages. Okay. Right? Like they're, they're like yeah. amateurishly Russell conjugating in the headline. Now, maybe both <laughs> of those are, I mean, it's just actually kind of amazing, right? Let me, okay. So wait a second. So you add all that stuff up, right? It's Latinos moving to cultural right. It's Muslims seemingly moving to cultural right and allying with Christians, which by the way, you know, this is actually a flip back to the 80s. You know why? Why? In the 80s, you had uh, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and, you know, some, some, you know, with the Reaganites versus the communists in the Soviet Union, right? If you live long enough, you start to see two gang up on the third and then flip and then flip again as you push the, you know, time frame out, Right. right? So, of course, there's different Muslim people and so on there, you know, but point being that like a Christian Muslim alliance against something on the secular left is not unheard of in history. It does happen. Right. And uh, and then you also add the fact that uh, world patterns of wealth migration and talent migration are not choosing the U.S. as the first place. They're going to Switzerland. They're going to Portugal. They're going to Israel. They're going to Singapore. They're going to Dubai. They're going to Australia and New Zealand, even Canada, but not the U.S., you know, inbound millionaires to the U.S. is down 85% since 2019. Talent, even as even in 2020, before BLM and all the riots and all the chaos of 2020 and 2021, uh, had not indicated the U.S. as their number one choice was Canada. And all these places in, in Asia, Japan and Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, because the world economy is in Asia. You don't have to go as far, right? Yeah. So you add up all of that stuff, and there's less political and economic gain from immigration. There's less power gain. Their, their biggest rivals, and this is really the biggest factor all, the biggest rivals for the U.S. establishment are not really the American conservatives. American conservatives are just barbarians. They just lack the IQ. 
Let me put it like this. In that photo of Elon in his conference room at Twitter, how many Southern good old boys were there? Zero. Zero, probably, right? Maybe one, yeah. okay? Like, no offense to them, but that's not where, like, you know, global engineering talent is coming from. Mm -hmm. It is the best engineers in the world versus the U.S. establishment versus the Chinese establishment, right? That's what BTC, NYT, CCP, that's what that's about, yeah. right? And so uh, this is why, like, you know, I think Elon wins as a global technologist and he loses as an American conservative. Um, it wins with code, loses with words. It's just something to keep in mind, you know, for him, you know, as he does things. And conversely, you know, for the U.S. establishment, they'll win where they're using the state and they'll lose yeah. when it comes to time for the battle of international markets or the network. Great example, by the way, this CHIPS Act, just to digress and rant about this for a second. You know about, you know about this thing? Uh, I've heard, the, the, yeah, the policy towards, yeah. Go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so essentially the idea is, oh, we're number one. We're going to ban our way to the top, freeze things in amber. China's never going to figure it out. You know, okay. Now, here's the thing. It, could it slow down China a bit? It's possible, okay? But in the medium term, here's, you know, this guy, Philip Pilkington, had a good essay on this. And he points out the following. First, and it's a combination of things. There's the CHIPS Act, and then there's a ban on, like, American semi-companies selling into China, mm -hmm. okay? Now, there's at least a few consequences of this. The first is... If you are a company that has the non-American company, of which, by the way, most of the world is neither American nor Chinese, yeah. okay? So if you're part of that 75% of the world, the majority of the world, super majority of the world, and you have some ambition of someday selling into China, it is not in your interest to hire an American semiconductor engineer, okay? So in theory, before that American semiconductor engineer might have gotten an offer from Siemens or Intel, afterwards, he doesn't get the offer from Siemens, only from Intel which means his effective salary has gone down, right? Two bidders went to one bidder, which means his salary has gone down, which means his career earnings have gone down, which means this profession is less attractive to him than let's say software, which means just that provision alone did not make a whole rush of Americans run into semiconductor engineering, but quite the contrary, right? If you're making a rational decision, like net lifetime earnings just dropped, who knows how much, but a fair bit, 75% of the world, 95%, if you include China, will no longer employ you, number one. Number two, American software companies can no longer sell to China. Now, look, there's people who may dispute these figures, but I think they're probably directionally accurate. David Goldman estimates that something like for every $5 that American companies are selling into China, they're now getting $1 in subsidies from this CHIPS Act. So first of all, that's a significant reduction in money. But second is the quality of the revenue is far different. Right. An American company that's managing to sell into China is actually very, very, very globally competitive because they're beating all of this, you know, all that pressure, domestic pressure there as well to, you know, buy Chinese or build Chinese and they're managing to do that. That's high quality revenue in a very, very competitive market. That's revenue that keeps you sharp. Yeah. By contrast, a dollar of subsidy revenue, all you need to do is lobby the politician to keep it going. The chip doesn't actually have to work. You just need to have news reports and politicians who are invested enough in saying that it works. And you make it taboo enough to say it doesn't work, yeah. right? So that's much lower quality revenue. So now what you've done is you've made the American semi-companies have less revenue and less quality revenue, and American semi-engineers have less availability of jobs and lower paying jobs. What do you think that's gonna do, right? That's just, you know, that's not gonna like vault you to the right. front of anything. That is like just a very short-sighted thing. And the way to show this, by the way, is 
you can't you can't ban your way to number one. If the U.S. establishment actually cared about leading in semiconductor engineering, it would be a week of solid state physicists tweeting from the White House account on band gaps and BJTs, okay, on MOSFETs and microelectronics, yeah. right? And you basically have electrical engineers, solid state physicists, all this stuff. You know, look, I'm not I'm not a semi engineer. But I did do a bunch of this in my PhD at like, you know, whatever, master's student level a long time ago. And you don't see any of this, right? Are they, are they like get into quantum mechanics? No, they're saying math is white supremacy. <laughs> okay. But, well, so the, go ahead. Push on that for a second. Like, yeah. should China not be banning, you know, American social net, uh, media networks? Like what, what is sort of the, ah. what are good bans versus not good bans? Well, here's the thing. It's not just that China banned. It's China banned and they built. Yeah, banned and built. Okay. And here's and that's really, really, really hard to do. I was skeptical, for example, that India could pull it off. India also managed to pull it off. Do you remember Free Basics? Free Basics. That sounds familiar. Free Basics in the mid-2010s, Facebook was going to do this oh, deal yeah. where they offered like really low-cost internet to be able to Facebook. And, and a bunch of Indian tech people and so on fought that, right? And at the time, I, yeah, I didn't have a strong opinion, but I was like, okay, well, fine. You're asking for the ball. You better dunk the ball. Yeah. And to India's great credit, they did. So so only ban if you can build, is basically what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Build is a more important component, part of it, right? To just ban at best buys you time. Yeah. Right? Why do you have to ban? Because that other guy is so far ahead of you that you have nothing domestic. So you're not just playing catch up. You're, you have to play catch up at such a speed that you eventually become p- competitive. That's really difficult to do, by the way. Yeah. Right? This, a lot of this stuff is made very moral, but every CEO has... A, a build versus buy decision on something. And in general, you build those things that are core to your business and you buy the stuff that is not, right? You know, you don't have to go and chop down your own lumber for chairs, but login is something that you could conceivably either build in-house or outsource to Facebook yeah. or Google, right? Or insource at some point, you know what I mean? That's like an important strategic decision. Uh, and then there's other things that you just have to build, like, you know, maybe your own software, but even then, you may want to use open source components, right? And so, so like that's that's just a decision you have to make. But without the capability to build, you're not making a decision. You're just no. eating down the seed corn, spending down what you inherit. I, I want to return to what you were saying about immigrants because it's really interesting. One concern of the right about immigrants for a while is that they won't assimilate. But now that's potentially one hope of, of the right. If you think of assimilation over American values, less as free speech or you know um, free markets and more as kind of like you know, justice, equality, extreme social progressive. You know, it's funny, the the Russian guy who got out, Victor Bout, the first thing he did when he back, went back to Russia was complain about, he said, in the US, they have 72 genders. Like, he did, like that was the thing that was most striking to him. Yeah, when, when, when America exports its values, is it exporting free speech and free markets or is it exporting something else? Right. Well, there's two different Americas, at least, right? You have woke America and tech America. Right. You know, I mean, there, there was in the 20th century as well. Yeah. You had communist America and capitalist America, and there were a lot of communists in America. Right. Trotsky raised money in New York. Yeah. You know? And one thing that's so striking is that the highest IQ people, or a lot of them, were communists. And similarly, like you mentioned, that there's no conservatives, you know, coding at Twitter, or Southern conservatives at least. Like, why are the highest IQ. With no offense yeah, to them, totally. I'm not, I'm not dissing them. They're just saying, you know. Why are the highest IQ people sometimes susceptible? People who are, you know, so technical or so, you know, deeply smart about building their company, sometimes susceptible to kind of like more radical ideas around politics or or culture. Well, 
I think intelligence correlates with ambition. And if you're just doing the same thing, you're not going to make a difference. Usually, basically, what is the outlet for that ambition? You know, it's kind of like um, if you've ever written a review of a book, okay, maybe for school, maybe just done on your own. You know, the straightforward thing is just to to do the down the middle interpretation, okay? Moby Dick, it's a book about a guy chasing a whale. But if you can come up with some crazy interpretation that you can somehow uh, support with a bunch of very novel citations from the book, right? You know, about like, for example, with Macbeth, uh, all the way back in the day, I remember this essay where, um, you know, maybe I had to write it for school or something like that, where a very high scoring essay on how uh, actually Lady Macbeth, everything in the book was talking about how it was good to kill and be a warrior and so on. And she wasn't able to do that because she was a woman. So she killed in the only way that she could. And so actually it's a feminist, you know, kind of thing, right? So she's actually the good guy and she was <laughs> held back, exactly. you know, blah, 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 <laughs> right? And she, you know, had she been able to slay him in battle, she would have done that, right? And this is a little bit like, uh, have you seen the reinterpretation of the Lord of the Rings where... Sauron is a good guy and the hobbits are bad guys. <laughs> I know, I haven't seen it, but I, I get the idea. Yeah. Um, the, the last ring bearer yeah, yeah. or something okay. like that, right? And the point being that if you're intelligent enough, you want often, you're, if you're intelligent and ambitious, you want to make a difference. You want to make a mark on the world. Doing the same thing won't do that usually. And so people look for innovation. And there's at least two routes. The first is to say, or convince yourself or have someone convince you that society is morally lacking on some dimension, right? Abolish the police, right? Okay. Or <laughs> exactly. Or or technological innovation. I mean to get to Mars, yeah. right? And one of the things I've realized relatively, I mean, not very, very recently, but it just sort of took me some time to put put that concisely like that. Wokes are focused on moral innovation, techs are focused on tech innovation. And in fact, both tech and woke are like two sinusoidal parallel movements that both arose like sort of after World War II, whether it's like desegregation for the wokes and the transistor, right? You can kind of see moments, you know, internet boots up and the 60s protests and then the microcomputer and PCs in the 80s and protests over uh, like the Clinton era, you know, PC stuff. There's both PCs were in the late 80s and early 90s, yep. right? And, and so on and so forth. Like, Tech and woke have sort of been growing out of the post-1945 uh, dispensation. And tech is actually very opposed to communism, and woke is very opposed to fascism. Yeah. Woke is obviously opposed to fascism because you have the Antifa and so on, right? Tech is obviously opposed to communism, maybe less overtly so, but it's not socialist nationalism. It's internationalist capitalism. You know, it is, yeah. uh, it's not communism in one country. It's the opposite of communism in one country. It's capitalism in all countries, yeah. okay? So what you have is basically the atom smasher of these various eras when, you know, as the 20th century ends, these are the two network ideologies of the West that are going to battle. And there's a third, which is the CCP thing, which is yet different, right? So those are, I think, like those three factions. Yeah. So so basically the wokes are moral innovation, the techs are tech innovation. And you that's why they're susceptible to it, Yeah, is because they're looking for something that channels their energies. And simply working at Dunder Mifflin Paper Company <laughs> doesn't. Right. Right. Now, once you realize this, though, you're like, okay, the techs to win 
need to have some degree of moral innovation as well. They also need a moral critique of society. But guess what? You know, it's interesting. The wokes have come up with such bad moral innovations on so many dimensions, they've managed to break society in the name of fixing it. So it's not too hard to come up with moral innovations that X is bad and Y is right. good, you know, and to, to rebuild society in a different way uh, on that. This is a concept of the one commandment yeah. that I talk about in the book, like startup societies that address very specific totally. moral issues with society. There have been ideas in the past decade that you've you've shared and sometimes people will look at you askance. You know, I remember we were at a dinner before, like in 2019, 2018 with our, our friends and collaborators. It was a presentation you gave um, at, at a friend's house. You said like, hey, Tech America and Woke America have been aligned against Trump, but in a post-Trump world, once Trump loses, they're going to become more at odds. And you, you yep. know, he said something like, uh, you know, we got to watch out for. I the- think that I think that was basically pretty. I that was pretty dead on. I thought. And you, you yeah. said we got to watch out for the New York Times. And he said, "What? We should love the New York Times. Like, what's wrong with the New York Times?" And of course, you know, <laughs> most recently, like people, a lot of people have seen, you know, been more sober about that. And so similarly, like some things you you've said recently that I think people. Ha- might look at you ask Anson or just surprise is the idea, like you have a couple ideas. I mean, one is your belief that Bitcoin maximalism is going to take over the right, that that hasn't even close to happened yet. It's a, it's a long-term prediction, but that like huge if true. And the other is that the left may actually- I feel I feel even more confident in that. Yeah, but I'll come the back left may even turn against diversity, like the thing that they yes. were, you know, um, yeah, so proponent of. Let me, let me do the second one first, okay? So by 2030 something, you know, it's possible that the, just like, for example, think about the Soviet Union, right? In the 80s, it was like officially communist. But by like the 90s or early 2000s, it was rebuilding Orthodox churches. Like a rubber band just snapped back into that previous thing, repudiated yeah. the whole past and so on and so forth, okay? Think about how many people today are actually supportive of all of America's Middle East wars in the 2000s. Who thinks that was a good idea? Very few. Very few people. Has there been any reparations paid by the U.S.? Yeah. Was BLM about that? Was BLM about Iraq? No, it wasn't, yeah. right? Though that was actually something that a lot of living people were guilty of, yeah. right? And 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 implicated. But it's such a large set of people who was implicated in that, that, okay, well, you know, we're not going to talk about that. So we're going to talk about this 1619 from like 400 years ago, right? So the, uh, the thing is that um, that's an example of like a storyline shift. The 2000s was all about terrorism. And you know, ISIS did continue into the 2010s. But the real storyline of the 2010s starting early on was wokeism, and that's like dominated, right? And now there's still tendrils of wokeism that are continuing. But I think this decade for the left, the pivot is from wokeism to statism. From abolish the police to fund the capital police, to trust the police, they'll definitely get the right decision, okay? And, you know, for example, in mid-2020, you had these people burning things outside the White House. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Right? That's actually being talked about less, you know, but they're burning things out the White House. They're tearing down George Washington. And they go <laughs> six, seven months later to tearing up over the Capitol. Tearing down George Washington, <laughs> tearing up. How could anybody attack these symbols of America? <laughs> go ahead. No, I'm just laughing. Yeah, the, the hypocrisy. It's, you know, T-E-A-R-I-R-N-G. It means, it's like, obviously, two different meanings of the same phrase, right? The same word. Um and so J6 was a good moment where when the state was sort of recaptured, now it became holy again and even more sanctified than it had been before. Now the previous anti-war Democrat is cheering for, you know, the, the fight with Russia. 
Who cares if, you know, like, oh my God, Trump was so bad for possibly starting a nuclear war. We could never have him there. Nuclear war might just be the price we pay for freedom, you know, or something like, okay. Yeah, exactly. Price we pay for democracy, rather, okay? And you see people say this in, in, in earnest this year, like, you know, hot war with Russia, who cares? You're just a coward, you know? Yeah. And right. and then you see this uh, um, latest thing with SBF where it's like, of course, I trust, you know, the police to get the right answer. The guy who two and a half years ago was literally setting police stations on fire. Right. <laughs> and so so you have this bizarre thing where the transition from wokeism to statism is underway. Right. Now, to just put this in context, these unprecedented things are, of course, precedented in, you know, the 1910s and 1900s, the communists in Russia. They would talk about how they're for land, peace, and bread. They were against the death penalty on principle, even for like hardened criminals and so on and so forth. And then what happened when they took over? Blam, just you get shot in the back of the neck, no due process or anything like that, right? They weren't for peace. Trotsky built the Red Army, right? They weren't for the workers. They put them to work in the, you know, White Sea Labor Canal, just digging the frost with their bare hands, poor guys, right? And so, you know, right? So, yeah. so that transition from this sort of, you know, we're just all vegan, peaceful, whatever, to just like this fanged monster has happened before, right? And, you know, this actually also, I mean, a different way in China, communist rhetoric was used to capture the entire country. When Deng Xiaoping turned the country to capitalism, it's not like he gave back the country to a bunch of different warlords or something like that. The lies that they used to gain power did not result in like that territory being taken away. They just pivoted the territory to something else, okay? This is a non-obvious point is that, you know, it's not like America now feeling that it's, uh, you know, it's changed its mind about all the Middle East stuff. Has it gone and taken the bases out of the Middle East? Okay, maybe it's not in Afghanistan anymore. Maybe it's not in Iraq, but there's still all kinds of aircraft flying all over the region, right? Right. And, uh, you know, Guantanamo is still around, all this stuff, right? So the thing about this is that Territory earned under slogan A is kept when it switches to ideology B, okay? And so in the pivot from wokeism to statism, the establishment is actually coming back about 30 points to the right. From the far left, they're coming back somewhat to the center. And you're seeing that on some dimensions. It's sort of stabilizing back. General Wells did this Lenin, the new economic policy. Do you know what that was? No. After the Soviet, you know, after the communists won the Russian Civil War, 1917 to 1921, from 21 to 29, Lenin put in place a so-called new economic policy, which is like, you know, capitalism of some kind is okay. And that kind of took the boot off the neck of some of the small businessmen. And it kind of quelled some of the unrest and allowed the communists to consolidate power during the 20s. And then, of course, Stalin dialed the red terror back up in the 30s, Okay. But this is a common kind of thing. You know, you acquire power under just terrorism, you know, 1917 to 1921 in the Soviet Union, or frankly, 2020 in America. And then you kind of ease up. Yep. Okay. You ease up a bit and you allow people to get comfortable and so on and so forth. Okay. And uh, so coming back 30 points to the right and, you know, starting foreign wars and confronting not just Russia, but Russia and China at the same time. There's a bunch of folks who are just happy that the U.S. is just fighting guys abroad and they're not attacking people at home. They're burning down other countries, not burning, you know, here. And they don't care that it's a fight with two nuclear powers that, you know, like Pelosi is trying to cause a fight, you know, on the base of Taiwan for, for no reason in the middle of a war with Russia, right? They don't care about that stuff. It's just like America, uh, you know. And 
the thing about this is uh, that that unfortunately will work. There's a fair fraction of people who, once it's no longer BLM, but it's bombs away overseas, will shift back, right? They will kind of come back to the state, okay? Now, um, so that's a pivot from wokeism to statism. And then by the end of this decade, it'll probably take the form of, unless you hold US dollars, you are a traitor or something along those lines, right? Mm-hmm. If you're against the dollar, if you leave America, you're a traitor. If you you know do X or Y or Z, and so the nationalism and socialism are merging, just like you know the the move to, from the uh, from the Democrats to take the China issue, just like I previously mentioned, they'll probably take the immigration issue. The most unpredictable, perhaps, thing is they'll eventually flip on race by the 2030s. Why? Because they're going to be all the blue checks are going to be competing with. Uh, essentially global technology, which is mostly non-white, yeah. which people don't really understand yet, right? It's mostly non-white. It's Indians, but it's South Americans. It's, you know, it's it's Arabs, it's East Asians, it's everybody, okay? Africans, Nigerians, and so on. Like, you're, you're competing with global technology, and uh, that is bringing your earnings down in, in competition, which you never had to have before. I think it's quite possible that they flip on that. And the immigration thing, flipping on China is like V1, Flipping on immigration is thinkable once you flipped on China. And then flipping on even race, right. you know, just like, and again, the precedent is, it's hard to see that today, okay? But the concept that in the 2000s, you know, when Republicans were going after the terrorists, that by by 2021, Republicans were being called terrorists by the government, Yeah. okay? So the government run by Republicans was going after terrorists, and now the government was calling the Republicans a terrorist, right? Yeah. The same laws that they passed were now right. being used against them. Yeah, that's quite a flip in twenty yeah. years. So, so yeah, people in Asia or Africa are going to use the same kind of progressive redistributionist language against sort of like you know elite black and Hispanics and you know in U.S. Well, because I mean that's the thing is yeah. like you know if you go overseas like basically America is privileged. Yeah. Right. If you actually if you apply you know woke whites in the U.S. do not apply that lens to themselves typically, right? And now, um, if you just apply the lens of privilege, who's been privileged for a long time? And what does it actually look like to, quote, check that privilege? It is the rest of the world actually coming up and becoming economically competitive, not simply getting handouts and NGO charity stuff. Charity is dependency. Investment is independence. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing at the idea of uh, check your privilege combined with the, the new made laws that Canada is uh, adopting. It's like... Well, I don't actually... What are the made laws? Tell me. Made laws are like uh, assisted suicide. Um, it's like, uh, yeah, people, they're like young people who are dealing with uh, depression and want to kill themselves. Oh yeah. It's very sad. Yeah, it's, the, it's tragic. They're letting them kill themselves without like their parents supervision, you know, uh, like overriding their parents. And so you could imagine it's like, in order for me to check my privilege, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, that sounds like a caricature now, yeah, but, but honestly, yeah. like you can imagine it getting to that insane level, yeah. right? Because there's no recipe on what do you do to make amends for your imagined sins or whatever, right? Yeah. So basically, though, by 2030-something, it's quite possible that China's the number one economy, India's number three, right? The U.S. is number two, but clearly declining. And white privilege doesn't feel so privileged anymore, right? You're already seeing a resentment of, like, foreigners and whatnot. And as that grows and lots of folks are no longer picking the U.S. as a place to invest in or the place to immigrate to or even leaving the U.S. and going abroad, you'll see a resentment and anger and that will be reflected in a in the same way that the bumptious nationalism of like you know the the last administration was like America FEA yeah. you know 
that there, there's a there's a version of that that's only slightly more refined, which is we're the democracy and human rights, and all of you brown countries don't have human rights and democracy, right? That's just like a slightly more sophisticated version, but it just so happens that if you go and make all these maps, you know, of Sweden's, you know, maps of yeah. democratic freedoms and so on, it's all the rich white countries, right? With the exception of like, you know, the few that the US has military base in like Japan and South Korea and so on, right? So it's essentially synonymous with that. And so the, all that patronization, once there's actually rejection and other countries, other people from around the world are able to go their own way, that'll curdle into a resentment, A. That combined with kind of relative economic decline will lead to, I think, rising nationalism and socialism. So just basically the prediction is, just like it was unthinkable that the Republicans would go from being against terrorists to actually in 2021 being like somewhat sympathetic to the yeah. Taliban and feeling like they were the ones who are now being called terrorists, I could see a flippening on that as well with wokeism, where it just turns into like a curdled, resentful chauvinism, at least. If not, quote, racism, maybe racism against Chinese nationals, but certainly American chauvinism, I can absolutely see, right? Just against yeah. non-Americans. And then the other side of it, like not, not opposed to it, but probably also somewhat summing with it, somewhat opposed to it. It's like a vector, which has some parts that sum and some that are against, is Bitcoin maximalism taking over the Republicans. Why do I think that happens? Because just like wokeism, is like a network that's yeah. above the Democrats and also somewhat contemptuous of them. It's like a ghost that inhabits the party, but is really an independent thing. It's a network that stands outside the state. So too, Bitcoin maximalism is like a network that stands outside the Republicans. It's like more radical and more principled in a sense than any mere elected or you know official could be. Okay, yeah. And the thing about it is Bitcoin maximalism rejects it rejects lots of things. It starts with rejecting the Fed, but it goes on actually towards, it's like a left-right combination because it rejects every fortune that was created in America because they're all cantillionaires, aren't they? They got, do you know what the yeah. Cantillon effect is? Yeah. yeah. Cantillon effect, the first people who get access to the printed money buy more assets with it. And then the poor guy in the Midwest who gets the money last, it's like a hot potato and yep. it has no buying power by the time it gets them, right? So everybody's got assets. They're all cantillionaires. You know, all the banks are corrupt. All the governments are corrupt. Every, everybody's corrupt. And, you know, there's there's like a, see, that's the thing is, there's a truth to this. Just like, why did communism get a lot of traction in the early 20th century? Because industrial age working conditions were tough. You didn't want, I mean, if you've seen like those mines, you know, those factories, they were tough. Were they probably better on average than, uh, you know, what preceded them? Like more stable in terms of outcome? Yes. But in that adaptation, you did have unscrupulous factory owners. You had things like the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. You had, you had those things. Now, of course, the solution to that is to come up with a system of you know, checks and balances where employers treat employees better and better competition and so on. The non-solution is communism where both worker and boss end up in a gulag. Yeah. It's lose-lose, right? But the, there was a problem, right? And similarly, the, the, like a lot of things that Maximus say are true. The money printing, the you know political corruption, and and so on and so forth. And what's going to happen though is basically once they just kind of lose faith in the electoral process entirely, which is starting to happen, and it might be one of those delayed reaction things where, you know, maybe it's twenty twenty four, and I don't know, DeSantis is uh, you know it's some contentious election, and Florida basically pushes for a Quebec like solution. You know, Quebec. Yeah, yeah, in Canada. Quebec has like quasi home rule yeah. in Canada, right? So it's part of the union, but it's also kind of not, 
right? It's got its own special things, right? Lots of things that Florida is doing is it's like setting up its own National Guard. It's got its anti-CDC. It's saying that's not going to enforce federal laws. This is all continuous with actually a lot of the stuff the left started with sanctuary cities. But sanctuary cities, it's gun laws, it's drug laws, it's abortion laws, it's uh, states suing the feds on education, State 17 states sued the feds on the 2020 election, and on many other things, right? So all of that probably leads to something where Bitcoin maximalists, you know, maybe they operate at the state level, maybe they're just rejectionist crypto anarchists entirely, but that is sort of to the Republicans what I think wokeness was to the Democrats, and it's like building this decade. Yeah. And one way of looking at that is it's just totally different from 1950s conservatism. In the same way that like wokeness is very different than communism. There's aspects of it that that seem similar, but it's like it's, you know, for example, it operates on the network, not within the factory. It's uh, a network ideology, not a state ideology, not fundamentally. It's got a different demographic. It's for, you know, women and minorities, not for uh, workers and peasants, right? And it is about status redistribution, not money redistribution. There, there are similarities, but also differences. In the same way, like the nationalist Republican conservatism is replaced by this sort of militant ultra-libertarianism. What's funny about that is for me to say that, people are like, what do you mean? Aren't you an ultra-libertarian? But I'm actually a pragmatist, right? right? I'm actually pro-civilization. I'm not against all states. I'm, I'm for consensual you know, government and opt-in, you know, fundamentally pragmatic in that sense. It is actually possible for there to be a caricature libertarian who's just genuinely, you know, like the people who, like the Free State Project had a lot of good stuff, you know, in principle about it. But all these people moved there, and some of them, the first thing they did is they started to fight like seatbelt laws. Yeah. And it's like, okay, is that like the first thing you want to fight with your political capital over there, or do you want to kind of reform other things? So it's possible to have like an insane ultra libertarianism that is as insane in its own way. It's so low trust that it's so libertarian that it's anti capitalist. Okay that no CEO is to be trusted, that every you know, new tech is actually a way of, it's a scam or a fraud. It's so cynical that it leeches all the trust out of the public sector as a way to say, okay, now the wokes can't cheat us anymore. True, but you also can't build anything anymore. You need some trust to have a society. So those are two things I can see rising, sort of an American chauvinism and a statism that kind of, you know, wokeism transitions statism, and then a Bitcoin maximalism, which is like a rejection of all institutions. And those come to a head, I think, if and when there's an attempt to seize Bitcoin. Yeah. Because that then fractures like society right on that axis that is not the Democrat-Republican axis of left-right, but it's the top-down, bottom-up yeah. axis, I think. And I don't know when that comes, but that I think that eventually comes. Those are interesting polls. But what about kind of the Elon taking over the right-wing party or someone, someone like an Elon? You know, it's interesting just to zoom out for a second. Sometimes you're, you're a fan of sort of the agree and amplify strategy. Of, you know, like sure. a, one example might be like the combination of tech and uh, and and progressive, like, uh, you know, end genetic privilege by encouraging gene engineering or e editing or so something like that. And other times you're like, let's reject the frame completely. Whereas like just transition, like don't fight something head to head, just transition to the next platform or, ne or next. And Elon is, is, I don't know if he's agreeing or amplifying, but he's certainly fighting. Yeah, just head on. And there's a possibility of him like him. There's people, you know taking over like conservatism, right? And it seems, or, you know, the based billionaire, um, you know, Peter Thiel's have done this. Obviously. I think, yeah, go for it. I think Elon's win strategy would be having all servers in red states relocating to Florida or Texas and like not leaving there at this point, right? I, I think you could maybe win that way, you know, for some definition of win, if you have a win scenario. 
But it's really hard because you're basically, you're, you know, the problem is it's hard to be a man that fights a movement. You could be a man that fights a man or a movement that beats a man, but it's hard for a man to beat an entire movement. That movement needs to be exhausted in some way, right? Or that man needs to create such a business model that he can align millions and millions and millions and millions of people behind it, right? Elon has part of that, but he doesn't have all of it. He doesn't have like a full parallel economy where everybody who believes in Elon can get a job in Elondia. That's where, that's where crypto could come in handy eventually. But what is the plan to win, right? It's over. It's overused. But the Sun Tzu thing, you know, a successful. I mean, look, Elon's one of the greatest entrepreneurs of all time. I'm not gainsaying that. And he is a genius, and he can figure things out. He's, by the way, just to talk about that for a second, why is Elon so respected among our community? Well. We all say, which is true, hardware is hard. Hardware is really hard. And to simply ship like a like a beige box that sits on a desktop is pretty hard to do, given all the r- ridiculous supply chain stuff and dealing with China and 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 you just can't iterate on it. And even if you can ship it, it's got low margins and it gets copied and blah, blah, blah. All that is true. And for him to not just ship a beige box, but to ship Tesla and SpaceX, which are not just, you know, an internal, you know, it's not like one beige box. It's like how many different pieces of electronics are in something like that, right? And it has, it's not something which it can crash and then reboot, like, uh, like it's a good piece of hardware, but like a Dropcam, right? Dropcam is a pretty good company, great company, yeah. in fact. But that is a much less ambitious piece of physical hardware than a Tesla, right? In fact, there's, I mean, there's essentially Dropcams within Tesla, among many other components, and then forget about SpaceX. It's yet another level beyond that. So to do not one incredibly difficult hardware company, but two, to the level of success he's done them during the crazy supply chain stuff that would kill most normal companies. I don't even understand how it's possible, honestly. Right? Yeah. It's like just something where so many companies got killed in 2020 and 2021 where just supply chains just got choked off. Yeah. Right? And to go to like record highs, even in the printed money environment, I don't even get it, right? This is like, just that's why, you know, greatest of all time or what have you, yeah. just on Tesla and SpaceX. And then to add on top of that, Boring Company and yeah. Neuralink and, you know, PayPal and Zip2, there's a reason that everybody thinks he's the greatest, right? By by a lot yep. out there, right? And those are unrelated companies as well. It's not like Google where you have like one code base and you can kind of run search or everything. You get some compounding value. Engineers yep. can move across the code base. You can ship and iterate. None of that is there. You have to stick the landing. Right, So it's like ridiculously operationally demanding, incredibly unforgiving in multiple businesses. So, so given all of that, right, there, it is true, however, that all you are dealing with at some level is the laws of physics. Like the car has to work, the spaceship has to work. Whereas the social network is more the laws of man. And that's not something where you can just solve the equation and it's done right? And then you just need to sell it. It is something where it'll just keep adapting on you. It never stops. I mean, you know, gun to my head, I, it's a very low probability prediction, but it feels like best case, this is just song and dance and it'll go on forever. Just like, you know, Trump, you know, whatever went on forever and people will break off of Twitter and do their own mini Twitters. And that's actually good. You know, there's farcasters and posters and like there's things on the left, like uh, tribal and there's uh, you know of course there's parlor and truth social and gab and there's a zillion of these now which is good 
it is good to have lots of Twitters yeah. and Discords and Reddits and to break away from this giant war zone and for people to find their own communities. And then I hope that just Alon has great physical security and maybe just like lives in an area where he doesn't, where people are, you know, not booing him. Like California is a bad place to be for Twitter's offices and for him physically. It's like being a Sunni and Shiite territory. I mean, I'm serious, yeah. right? Republican Democrat yeah. is an ethnic conflict now like Sunni Shiite. All right. Why don't we wrap it up? Last question. Yeah, yeah. Totally. This idea of the base billionaire, you know, it, it, we've seen a lot of billionaires kind of follow in this like Davos, Davos elite class, like even SBF, right? You know, a 30 year old billionaire, but like, you know, classic da Davos uh, elite when it's just ironic that, you know, billionaires who are so contrarian in the professional life become so like homogenous once they become billionaires. Like, do you imagine a world, it was almost like Galt's Galt, like Bezos and like these others just like move over to the Elon side? Or do you think Elon and Teal will always be like the just this very small, do you, do you foresee a real counter elite? Well, yes. I mean, but the thing is that uh, here's the important thing. These people may be seen as being on the right in the US, but they're in the left in China. Interesting. Right. Which means they're in the global center because woke America is the farthest left entity in the world and communist China is the farthest right country in the world. Like, you know, in woke America, as I've said, whites go to the back of the line for vaccines. Whites are the worst. That's the official ideology. And in communist China, Han Chinese are the best. That's the official ideology, right? Ethno-maskism and ethnic nationalism, right? And in the middle, you have the pseudonymous economy, right? You have global meritocracy. You have the American centrist or conservative, and you have the Chinese liberal. And you have the Israelis, and you have the Indians, and you have South Americans, and everybody who's outside of Who's outside the binary, Eric? We're contesting the binary, okay? <laughs> Non-binary, yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. Right? And so um, the thing is that uh, the quote-based billionaire or centrist billionaire or decentralist billionaire, one of the reasons Bitcoin becomes a flag of technology is, you know that saying like, you know, billionaires are a policy failure, billionaires should not exist. Well, before Bitcoin, arguably, billionaires did not really exist. And what I mean by that is, bearer instrument, like that amount of money to carry on your person or securely outside the reach of the US and Chinese government did not really exist. And I think we're going to see the limit case of that in 2030. Like in, in, in Greece, in 20 or in Cyprus rather in 2013, do you know what the, you've heard of bailouts, you know what a bail-in is? No. When your deposits in the bank are used to bail out the bank. Okay. So the haircut of like 25% in Cyprus in 2013. Zero Hedge reported on this. Almost like FTX or not even because FTX. Yeah, yeah, it's like FTX. Basically, the depositors, okay. <laughs> Cyprus, 37.5% depositor haircut upgraded to 47.5% Brazilian wax. <laughs> so basically, something like 475 percent of their deposits were just used to bail out the banks or bail in the banks, okay? One day you wake up, half your money is gone and it's being used to get worthless equity in some stupid, you know, Cyprus bank, okay? That kind of thing has happened in, quote, developing countries all the time. And that may come to the, quote, developed world. I mean, we're seeing the truckers getting their funds frozen. Yeah. You know, this is one of those things. It's not like there's one fire alarm that rings. It Honestly, 2020 was the fire alarm. If 2020 did not wake people up, if the insanity of mid-2020 and literally a month of arson, riots, 
like armed robberies, you know, crazy glassy-eyed people walking around the streets, people with automatic weapons and masks, uh, you know, cars being pulled over, mob screaming, you know, the, the police standing aside and doing nothing or cowed or defeated, right? Like 2020 was a preview, I think, of 2030 in the same way that like 2008 and the bailouts were a preview of like the bailouts of 2020, unfortunately. Yeah. Right? So I don't know. I mean, look, who knows? Maybe, maybe it's just all, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe like all the people are like, uh, you know, it reminds me of um, the onion, uh, you know, the counterpoint, no. No. So basically, this was this great uh, thing here. This war will destabilize the entire Mideast region and set off a global shockwave of anti-Americanism versus no, it won't. Right. Right. And, you know, this was uh, March 2003, right? Mm-hmm. And basically, you know, trust me, it's all going to work out perfect. Nothing is going to happen. It's all under control. Okay, maybe that's true, right? Maybe maybe you can really just base rate the whole thing to infinity, even when all these other indicators are down and to the right. Maybe it'll last much longer than we think. Maybe there'll be some amazing person who comes in and turns around the whole thing in Napoleon or something, and you won't have to do anything. Yeah. Could be. Very much could be. But, uh, but it's on my bet. Yeah. It's on my bet. Well, uh, we'll, we'll find out. Balaji, I want to l- let you go. Thanks so much for coming to the podcast. It's been a great episode. Great. Awesome. Talk soon. Oh, by the way, go and read thenetworkstate.com. Yes, exactly. Uh, free, I, I, free I, online, free online. Let's read book. Okay, see you guys. Okay, take care. Upstream with Eric Tornberg is a show from Turpentine, the podcast network behind Moment of Zen and Cognitive Revolution. If you like the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. Get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. I believe in SecureFrame so much that I invested in it and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo and mention Upstream during your demo to get 20% off your first year. Now, more than ever, startup founders need a safe place to put their cash. Mercury protects your money and also provides the streamlined user experience that great founders expect. Through partner banks and their sweep networks, Mercury offers up to $5 million in FDIC insurance, which is 20 times the per bank limit. They also make it easy to invest any cash above the FDIC insured amount in a money market fund. 100,000 startups trust Mercury with their finances. I've been a happy Mercury customer and have found their team incredibly helpful and responsive. They even got an important wire out of purgatory on Christmas Eve. After all, your Christmas is my opportunity. Visit mercury.com to get started. Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group and Evolve Bank and Trust, members FDIC. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. With thousands of pre-vetted marketers across a dozen roles, Marketer Hire matches you to your perfect marketer in 48 hours. Whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle, content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy, Marketer Hire has you covered. So if you're a founder looking for top-notch marketing talent to grow your startup, Head over to marketerhire.com to find your perfect match. Sign up with referral code UPSTREAM and you'll get $1,000 in credit on your first hire. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts 
to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.